The Secrets of Stargate is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Stargate. Daniel West Jackson has identified the seventh symbol. All right, here we go. We are about to try to make a connection. All we gotta do is bust out of here, commandeer the ship, and fly on home. say that a lot. I know that this could be dangerous, but this is our job, right? It's what we signed on to do. It was never about going home. It's about getting us to where we're going. Hi, I'm Jack Berizzini, and you're listening to The Secrets of Stargate, where we talk about the hidden meanings and deeper layers found in the Stargate movies, TV series, and more. Joining me today are Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father. How's it going, Jack? It's going well. And Lisa Jones. Hi, Lisa. Hey, Jack. And Victor Lambs. Hey, Victor. Hi, Jack. Today, we are discussing the second episode of the first season of Stargate SG-1, The Enemy Within. This episode picks up pretty much right after the end of the previous episode, which was the series premiere. And we start with, they've got the uh, iris closed. And every so often, the gold are smashing up against it, trying to get through. And that scene really reminded me, we can talk about this um, more in a minute, but it kind of reminded me of that episode of uh, Battlestar Galactica 33, where every 33 minutes, they're having to jump to get away from the sidelines. It had that same kind of feel. As we're moving through the episode, Kowalski's been having a really bad headache, and uh, Teal'c is there, and he is been imprisoned by General Hammond. Jack O'Neill is trying to convince the general to trust Teal'c and to let him join the SG-1 team. And Hammond does not seem to be against that, but uh, General Kennedy, or Colonel Kennedy from the Pentagon, is coming, and he is tasked with basically questioning Teal'c and taking him back for questioning and potential experimentation. And Kowalski, they end up discovering that he has a infant gold inside him. It takes him over. He ends up killing several of the doctors and trying to escape. Teal'c uh, allows them to use the gold that is inside him to uh, perform experiments with anesthesia, where they attempt to remove the gold from Kowalski. The surgery appears to be successful. They take it out of him, but then it ends up that the Gowald has taken over his brain with, I guess, just its head left. He tries to escape. There's an altercation between him and Teal. The back of his head ends up getting sliced off by the closing of the Stargate. And that is, that's the end of Kowalski, unfortunately. And when all this happens, they recognize Teal's loyalty, and the president ends up calling Hammond giving Kennedy a dressing down over the phone, and the episode ends with Teal'c on the SG-1 team as they leave for their first mission. You're absolutely right. You, you mentioned about the BSG episode, and, and you know, ironically, not ironically, but interestingly, of course, that 33 was the, was the first episode after the pilot of BSG. Now, mind you, BSG was many years after this. I mean, this was, what, five years, I think, or something like that when BSG started. And I, I think the two are, it, it's coincidental. This idea of having the race against time, the race against an enemy that's constantly at the gates, that, that's, a, that's an old theme in fiction, especially. So Yeah, definitely. I really liked how, um, I know we talked about this last week, um, we were comparing the Children of the Gods to Encounter at Farpoint, which is the first mm -hmm. season or first episode of Next Generation. I like how put together the show already feels like mm -hmm. jump going into this. It does not mm -hmm. feel like they're getting their footing. People feel like they've they have their characters already under their belt and everything feels natural. That is that is a big difference between Stargate and 
Star Trek is really Stargate. They do a good job of getting into their characters quickly. Star yeah. Trek, <laughs> not so much. And and that no. was a main consideration when they were casting, too, is they knew they were going to have a 44 episode pickup right out of the gate. And so they didn't have a chance to go through the pilot process where, you know, you, you do a pilot, uh, you know, test audience to say, well, I don't like that guy. So you, you know, do some cast changes and film it again. They didn't have a chance to do that, so they needed to nail the cast right out the gate. Mm-hmm. And uh, to their credit, they certainly did. Right. I felt like this episode really, I mean, the, the first one, you got the sense of who they were. But this one, when you watch the rest of the series, this one, you really, it, they've settled in. They are kind of mm-hmm. who they are for the next several seasons. So it was, and I wrote down on my list that, you know, Carter's spouting technical lingo. Like there's, like, it's just natural words, you know, she, she falls yeah. into that very quickly and general hammond you know i mean in the first episode he's very brusque he's very rough this one you start to see his personality start to come out you get to see his protectiveness of his troops i mean he, he basically tells colonel can oh, he literally tells excuse me not basically he does tell <laughs> colonel kennedy there's the door don't let you hit don't let it hit you where the good lord split you and he calls he calls a lot of them son if you notice yeah. Yeah. This is the kind of the first glimpse we have of uh, General Hammond's personal integrity as well as Colonel Neal's personal integrity. And that, I think, is the real heart of the show, not just those two characters, but other characters as well. They have a personal integrity that they live by. You want to spend time with them because they are authentically who they are. And I think that's uh, one of the reasons the show, uh, the show has been so successful. I really like uh, the scene where they're interrogating Teal and how, how they're standing up for him, which I, I found that interesting because you understand where Jack O'Neill is coming from, wanting to have him on the team and trusting him implicitly because he risked his life to, life to save them. But you also understand where... The higher ups would be coming from. You've got this guy who is an alien from another planet. You're not going to immediately want to start trusting him. Well, and as they even say in the show, an alien from another planet containing the larval state of their enemies and having been a, a fighter. And we find out how important of a, a figure he was within the Jaffa later, you know, at one of the one of the lead fighters of their enemy. And all of a sudden now he's turned tail. Right. One one question about that scene. How did O'Neill know that Teal'c has an apostrophe in it? <laughs> Question, yeah. I'm sure they had to fill out forms, right? When he arrived. Probably, yeah. 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 <laughs> it's on his passport. his passport. There's a photo I'd like to see. It's interesting because Teal'c is completely understanding of why they would be suspicious. And Jack O'Neill comes in and he's like, I guess we're not living up to your expectations. And he's pretty much just like, I, this is kind of what I expected. <laughs> it, it makes sense, though, just because, you know, even in the real world, if, if someone betrays their country you know comes to the united states is even like you hear about the russian spies back in the cold war they weren't immediately just released off into the general public say enjoy your life as an american <laughs> you know they were treated with with suspicion until they proved themselves that worthy of be, being allowed to be an american because the best way to infiltrate someone would just say hey i'm coming over your team just let me do whatever mm-hmm. i want you got to earn that trust which they go through that with him basically risking his life again to allow them to experiment on him with the anesthetic to get mm-hmm. the gold out of Kowalski. And in this episode, we also get a lot more of the background of the gold fleshed out, like with the the genetic memory that they have. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, a lot, a lot of firsts in this episode. First mention of the Gould genetic memory, first uh, use of the word Tauri, and uh, yep. first uh, use of the red phone where uh, General <laughs> Hammond threatens to and calls the president of the United States, and he'll get a lot of use out of that. Yes, out of that red phone. <laughs> right. Nice. I think this was the first use when they used the word mouth and dialing. 
that they they were dialing a planet. And then they have the word dial home device written on the whiteboard behind Sam Carter. I love that whiteboard. (laughs) It's just so perfect. It's exactly how those things usually end up going. Like you have this high tech facility and you still need your whiteboard. (laughs) Hey, I I, I still take all my notes on paper so I can understand. (laughs) I still the old fashioned way. You know, I mentioned the Tari and they did make it more explicit that, and it sets it up, of course, for the rest of the series Mm -hmm. that all these humans that they're meeting are from Earth originally, that their their ancestors came from Earth to populate these different planets. Right. It also gives a much better reason for why everyone out in the galaxy is basically just humans with bumpy foreheads than Star Trek. (laughs) Yeah. Because I know they they have an explanation for that in Star Trek where it's some ancient species seeded DNA throughout the universe, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't actual humanoids at that point. Mm -hmm. So they definitely they definitely get out in front of that and just say, hey, this is why they're all evolved humans or just regular humans. And I, I did like Tilk's look when he's talking about, yeah, there's this ancient story of this Tauri and all this stuff like Tilk, that's us. So should we talk about uh, Kowalski here? He is such a, a great character. And, you know, the more watching this episode again, I just realized how it was implicit, but almost explicit, the linkage between, uh, you know, the original Stargate movie, the show, and especially the character of Charlie Kowalski is to those old 1950s and 1960s World War II squad movies, where you would have a squad of five mm. or six people, you know, the, the the sergeant and then, you know, the, the, the enlisted men trying to cross, you know, France or whatever, while the... Germans are shooting at them. And, you know, there was always a, a Polish character named, you know, Kowalski or Kalatsky or something. There was always like a, an Italian American, <laughs> you know, so we have yeah. Ferretti and, uh, you know, somewhere along the way they're, they're talking about their girls back home and, you know, one of them takes a bullet and it's usually Kowalski, you know, or Charlie takes, uh, takes a bullet. And as he's dying, he says, you know, don't let them get me, you know, don't let me get me. And it's like, no son, you'll, you'll pull through. You'll be okay, son. And I'm watching this and I'm, it's, it, it's very played very well. So it's not, you know, tongue in cheek but there's mm-hmm. definitely you know as the i think the creators of the show were growing up like like a lot of us watching you know the the saturday morning movies and it, you know on uhf it was always these either monster movies or these you know 1950s 1960s squad movies so you know there's a lot of that uh, a lot of that in charlie kowalski too well he was he was gonna have his first command and he was so excited he was gonna finally get his first command and just like showing the just like he was the one with the picture of the yeah. girlfriend you know showing oh this is my girlfriend i can't wait to get home and marry her never mind you know that character's not long for this world whenever that happens. I think that's what's interesting in this episode, if you think about it, that Kowalski's one of the few original characters, right, from the movie. And they'd kind of set him up that he's going to get SG-2, he's going to be a big deal, you know, in the pilot. And then right out of the gate, he's dead. So it it is interesting that they did that. And I mean, the speculation would be so that just to prove how bad or how serious the threat is from the from the Gould, right? That even a main character could die. So everybody better be on their toes. Right. This is pre Game of Thrones. So they would just kill main characters. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That didn't happen too much in the late (laughs) nineties. Although it was, uh, it was, I had forgotten how, Kowalski died. I had forgotten the method by which they that they ended up killing him, and it's just like, oh, that's quite the lobotomy. Odd choice, though, right? Beam the top of his head off to we were saying Chulak earlier. You know, we were talking before. Weird, weird day for the people of Chulak. Uh, Gate opens and closes, and I have to say, watching it again when O'Neill says, "Hold him right there," and I'm thinking, really. 
Yeah. You can't oh. just shoot him. I mean, you know, kind of like that's an odd choice. O'Neill is, for, yeah. I don't know. O'Neill is very, like, a lot more acerbic and cynical than he, than he will become. You know, they're like when, uh, you know, they're, the, there's the impacts on the iris. It's like, like bugs on a windshield. Yeah. He, he eventually uh, <laughs> finds his uh, sense of humor, I guess. Well, you know, a different sense of humor, I suppose. Yeah. He's got. <laughs> yeah, that was an, speaking of the 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 hitting on the iris, that was an interesting effect where you'd see it flex. Yeah. But uh, and then you know they did tie into um into the movie where extended version of the movie where they they had the crushed warriors. Well, we know them now, Jaffa they're called, but the crushed uh, raw soldiers in the rock, and they tied into that how people you know they they would come in and they would the the warriors would come in and hit that iris instead of hitting rock. I do wonder if they need to ever uh, scrape off the back of that thing. Like how close to the event horizon is it? Didn't you say three <laughs> microns? Yep. Yeah. Uh, well, there you go. <laughs> See, that's that's one of those things they talk about too. Is like we know the iris is close, but we don't know how close. They say it's three microns. If you think about that, that's literally infinitesimal. So close that the matter doesn't even reintegrate. You know, it hits the iris as energy, yep. I guess, and it's yep. it's pretty impervious. Uh, to everything except uh, extreme gravity. Extreme gravity and uh, too much energy will eventually start to affect it. And there's an episode about that later. That's so cool. Uh, Yeah, this is a very dark episode. And I mean that literally. It's early on in the series. They do not light the SGC to the extent that Mm -hmm. they do later on where it seems bright. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very authentic. It feels very lived Mm -hmm. in like it is an underground base. And they have just the amount of lighting that Mm -hmm. you would need uh, down there. But it does make it hard to watch. I noticed that too. I was thinking maybe it was my TV or maybe it was just early, you know, just the way it looked early yeah. on and I'd forgotten. But I, yeah, I guess it was done intentionally. Yeah, that's the funny part is I, I had kind of the same thoughts. I'd, I'd taken all my DVDs and ripped them to my media server. And I thought, did I not? do that well did i do something to you know cause the image to be dark and you know again it's, it's one of those things that kind of makes sense because this went from being a more or less decommissioned installation to now we're an active mission well maybe not everything's quite mm-hmm. set up right yet completely and that's usually how it goes on military bases yeah the lights aren't going to work and everything's going to have lead paint <laughs> oh yeah Oh, believe me. I've been in buildings that are like that. <laughs> yeah, I do like the film grain. You know, just they were still using film at this point. So it does have that like mm-hmm. gritty 1980s action movie type film quality to it before they, before they went to video. I do like how this episode is essentially a part three mm-hmm. of the series opener, though, which this was still at the time like television was starting to transition with Babylon 5 and Deep Space Nine from pure episodic television mm-hmm. to longer stories. But this really feels like you get an integrated story, which I like a lot. It is kind of funny to think about what was airing at the same time this was and yes this was uh season three i want to say of ds9 was airing at about the same time because i think it was 91 is when ds9 first started you know so so it, yeah it, it was very concurrent to when ds9 was starting to do the more serialized storyline because the first couple of seasons of ds9 are, are still pretty episodic as all of it is but they brought in more of the right. serial line after about season three or so tv starting to explore that idea of course ba- babylon 5 is kind of the watershed at least in science fiction for serialized tv yep. I mean, it really is the one that everybody points to of that where this was much more revolutionary as far as that's concerned. But they'd been playing with it, as you see with this, long before that. Another show that premiered the same year uh, that was playing around with the you know, longer story arcs was Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which had an uh, entire every season was basically its own arc, but still had Monsters of the Week episodes as well. Another thing they touch on in this episode is Daniel Jackson's anxiety over what's happening with Skara and Shuri. Mm-hmm. And they go into that with because Kowalski at the end of the episode, even though they've removed most of the gold from his brain, it still is able to take him over. So that's the big it seems like that's going to be a big 
lingering question oh, yes. over the season is mm-hmm. what has happened to them and can they be saved? And then also when they say does something of the host survive, the fact that Kowalski being taken over was still able to dial or set off the auto destruct, right? Mm-hmm. So how did the ghoul right. know what was in Kowalski's brain? That looked like mm-hmm. it gave Daniel Jackson and Carter a little bit of hope there that there's something left. We get Dr. Warner in this episode. And uh, I think a couple other ones as well. I meant to look up the actor's name. I, I didn't. But, uh, you know, he's someone from uh, X-Files, every TV show of the 90s. He was on whenever they would need somebody just to play the normal doctor or the normal scientist, but yet with a distinctive enough face that he would he would stand out. And he's very good. He's a very good doctor. Uh, he approaches things, you know, medically. And, yeah, I like I like him. I like how. And this may change later on, but so far it seems like they keep they keep the scientific uh, jargon believable and to mm-hmm, a minimum. Mm-hmm. You know that sometimes when you get into science fiction shows, they can be they can go over the top with the techno babble and it's just gibberish. But it seems like here they're trying to relate it to actual concepts and keep it at least semi believable. Yeah. I think they do a really good job of that. They use O'Neill's character to kind of you know remember in the beginning he said he didn't like scientists. So whenever you see Carter go off right. into her techno babble, he usually is rolling his eyes or making a face or some, yep. you know, quip to get her to be quiet or, you know, they kind of shut it down. So, no, there's not a lot. And that's that is nice. It's more of a it's science fiction without all of trying to teach you technology or or worse yet, getting the technology wrong. Well, <laughs> yeah. And O'Neill really he, he kind of is that audience stand in where scientific concepts can be dumbed down and explained to him Mm -hmm. but it doesn't feel like a lot of times there'll be there'll be movies or um series where they're explaining the science for the sake of the audience but Mm -hmm. everyone in the room is an expert so it seems extremely it's like why are you telling people these basic scientific concepts yeah star trek doesn't do that so of course as you know as as the head the chief of engineering this is how the warp drive works what kind of what kind of force field is it (laughs) yeah some, some <laughs> yeah. kind of force. You know, speaking of technology, did you love the part where Tilk explains that the Jaffa don't understand any of the technology? They called he called it magic, right? And so that he doesn't understand it and doesn't know how to use it. And of course, I love the uh, Colonel's face with uh, kind of like, "Then what good are you if you can't explain it to us?" Yeah. No, I like that. I like that a lot because that's another thing that you could compare it to Star Trek, where. Everyone is an expert at everything whenever the plot calls for it. I, I've never seen this race before, but I know exactly how their warp drive works, including which buttons to push on a panel that I can't actually read. At least when Stargate does that later on, it's like, oh, I've studied all the schematics. And, and so I know exactly where we are in the Gould mothership and how to get to the Peltac and stuff. But and uh, but yeah, this episode does give us the next in a long line of slimy, antagonistic colonels that visit Stargate Command. Um, mm-hmm. Some are, you know, have more uh, ill intent than than others. But and I was watching it. And yeah, he is slimy. He does have some good points, though, um, you know, about maybe, you know, maybe keeping Kowalski around as, as, as a Gould uh uh, as well, the one thing I did I did notice because I, I was wondering if he came back on the show, and I learned that the the actor who played Colonel Kennedy, uh, Alan Rakins, he was just before this mm-hmm. in a sci fi movie called Terminal Voyage, which has a second title, and that second title is uh, Star Quest. So you can kind of see how everything is connected here. Here we are on Star huh. Quest, <laughs> talking about Stargate <laughs> with an actor who was on Star Quest. But that's a bit of a bit of a reach. Well, yeah, he he also he he plays the slimy character well because if you remember the the TV series from the eighties, L.A. Law, he was kind of like one of the the head lawyers on that. So if I remember right, he was like like one of the real jerk 
lawyers too. He's so yeah, he, he plays that character well. I was reading something today uh, about this episode and the, the person, and I wish I could give their website a shout out, but they probably wrote this in 1997. So it doesn't really matter. Um, and they pointed out that this, this episode really kind of introduced a second villain or antagonist for the, for the Stargate for SG-1 or Stargate Command, and that was the government. And throughout the mm-hmm. entire mm-hmm. series, the government is another villain or antagonist that it runs yeah. through. And I hadn't really thought of it that way. So I thought that was pretty insightful that we keep not only keep getting these slimy colonels and senators and, you know, stuff later on. It's uh, there's always some mm-hmm. government agency, some somebody sent from somewhere to shut them down or question them or, you know. Yep. I do wonder how they had to walk that line, being that the show uses the Air Force extensively. Mm-hmm. And I know they had to get approval for the scripts like with pretty much anything that uses the actual branches of the military you have to get that signed off on so i wonder how much they had to walk that line with how bad can we make the government <laughs> well and, and and eventually it if it stops being so much the military itself i mean you still get occasional mm-hmm. characters but then eventually it becomes the politicians and of course the military has no problem ripping on politicians oh, unofficially no. and I, you know i honestly wonder at least this early on how much military involvement there was I mean, later later on, you actually get like the chief of staff of the Air Force actually playing a role in a command ceremony. Yeah, two chiefs of staff yeah, actually. Nice. Yeah, two of them. Two. Yeah. Yep. I think I remember watching one. I'm going. Hey, he was chief of staff when I was in the Air Force. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember him. He changed our uniforms. I didn't like that. No. <laughs> I think people in the military also tend to be fans of shows like this anyway. So mm-hmm. they probably had a large following. I did read somewhere that they did that that they yeah. in the Air Force. They, they it was a that. Uh, in fact, they said at Cheyenne Mountain, there's an actual door that says like SGC mm-hmm. on it. It's a fake door, I think. Or- yeah, it's a broom closet, but it says start to Stargate Command or something like that. <laughs> and my older brother used to live in Colorado Springs. So whenever I went out there, we would talk about going into Cheyenne Mountain to see a Stargate. <laughs> yeah, they don't let you get down to that level. <laughs> yeah, I want to see. I'll be interested to see how they explore the the way the gold take over their hosts. Because I've not because, of course, I've not seen the rest of the series yet. So I'm interested in that aspect. I'm also interested in how the gold reproduce because it doesn't mm-hmm. seem like they would have children we but do big that. vats of gold juice much later yeah. yeah well there were a few inconsistencies mm-hmm. and I, but it, it gives spoilers for later so i don't know if we want to talk about that yeah and this one yeah it was like oh we didn't see it you know we didn't see the gold was left in his head because it had been absorbed so completely and then at the end there's a little gold head that pops out yeah gold nugget yeah. <laughs> chicken mcgould or whatever <laughs> <laughs> they they kind of walk that back a little bit uh and i think it i think it, the gold remains more distinct yeah. you know wrapped around the spinal column there but I, I did appreciate how in order to save money whenever they were showing the surgery rather than actually like showing like a full cgi yeah. gold or something they had their little x-ray view which was the wireframe flat shaded animation yeah, yeah. 3d model that was good that was good yeah there's certain things in this episode yeah, i felt like that were a little fast forwarded but it, they had so much really plot they had to get through to move it along to get us to where we could do plan of the week or kind of set everything up that it's forgivable because it gave you those good emotional you know see the real emotional connections the loyalty you learn a lot about o'neill and how loyal he is to people stuff like that so i'll forgive him the kind of it's a lot in one episode it does seem like they was very economically written (laughs) like they they did not waste any time in this episode which I, i really appreciate because if this was made now the entire subplot with Teal'c being under suspicion and being investigated would have been stretched out to be five or six episodes of high drama. Yes. And just over, like, I'm just thinking of like later Battlestar Galactica or Star Trek Discovery where everything has to be very high drama all Mm -hmm. the time. Yeah. 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 That's one of the things that got over very quickly. Right. 
but you had you had to you had to send yeah. them off world. I mean, you had to have SG one in place. So let's go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Stargate has always been very good about right out of the gate. You know what the show is going to be about. They set up you know the, the the point of the show. They're very economical with their story beats, and I like that for that. Yeah. So after uh, poor Kowalski's gone, they get all suited up and they <laughs> jump through the Stargate. And, and and you notice they go to the world that he was going to go to. Yep. No, I didn't notice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Step over his corpse and off they go. I wonder if O'Neill got his stereo. <laughs> yeah, he must have had a pretty yeah. good stereo. <laughs> yeah. And we learned how um, effective Tilk is going to be in a fight, right? Because with him going head to head with Kowalski, Kowalski strangles him, basically, and then takes mm-hmm. off. And then he gets up and chases him down and is able to hold him in place, overpower him, all that. So that was a good, because we learned a lot about Jaffa and their and their strength and how old they are and all that kind of stuff. So this was a nice kind of setup for the uh, what the role he's going to play. Yeah, they, they did hint in the Children of the Gods that Jaffa get an advantage from having mm-hmm. the, the larva of the Gwauld, but he really didn't get into that very much. But we got to see that there where he's able to fight Gwauld-influenced human on an equal plane. Mm-hmm. You know, so, we, also, we also learned something uh, critically important about the Gould in this episode, too, which is Kowalski Gould could have gotten away scot-free if he hadn't called Teal to the uh, medical lab just to gloat or call him a traitor or rub it in. Yep. You know, he could have just gotten up, head out, but no, he had to call uh, Teal Shova or whatever. And uh, and because of that, yep. uh, he's he's <laughs> yeah. not with us anymore. He outed himself. It seems like there's definitely a pattern of all the Gwalds being maniacal to the point of sabotaging their own plans. Yep. <laughs> Pretty much. Very arch. <laughs> and and that's 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 yeah. that's part of the genetic makeup, the genetic memory of the Gwauld is here's how you react. You act like you are the king of the world and everybody else must bow before you, mm-hmm. even if you're not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I did like uh I liked Teal's Gandalf moment. Yes. You shall not pass. Yep. You turn Sony off. Well, we also fools. learned about the yeah. <laughs> gold yeah. trickery, right? Yeah. That he could, you know, they he was there. The gold was in Kowalski and pretending, and you know, oh, I just need to speak to my friend. It's okay. So, and that we see a yeah. lot of that later too. The, you're not sure if you're talking exactly. to the real person or or not. All right. Well, I think that'll uh, probably wrap it up for tonight. Um, But before we go, we'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create Secrets of Stargate, including David J., Chris E., James S., Jonathan H., and Ryan Z. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the Secrets of Stargate and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Be sure to follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or on the SQPN YouTube channel. To find previous episodes of Secrets of Stargate and to send feedback, please visit sqpn.com stargate. You can email us at stargate at sqpn.com or follow StarQuest on social media at facebook.com starquestmedia or on Twitter at sqpn. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the next episode of SG-1, Emancipation. Until then, Father Corey, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Stargate. Oh, thank you, Jack. Lisa Jones, thank you, too. Oh, thank you, Jack. And Victor Lambs, thanks. Thank you, Jack. And in the immortal words of uh, Charlie Kowalski, kill it, kill it, kill it. <laughs> 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 and once again, I'm Jack Barazzini. Thank you for listening to the secrets of Stargate on StarQuest.
Anyway, I'm sorry, but that just happens to be how I feel about it. What do you think? 